Coming up on this episode, author Jess Everly joins us to talk about her Victorian romance series, Lucky Lovers of London. Welcome to episode 430 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of queer romance fiction. I'm Will, and with me as always is my co-host and husband, Jeff. Hello, Rainbow Romance Reader. It is great to have you here for another of our Super Summer bonus episodes. So as Jeff just mentioned, we're going to be learning a little bit more about Jess Everly's writing in a moment. But before we get to this week's interview, I want to tell you all about how much I enjoyed Jess's The Gentleman's Book of Vices. Now, this story is about Charlie, a man who is about to get married, who searches out his favorite erotic novelist and finds that Reginald Cox is brooding bookstore proprietor Miles. Charlie goes to his shop hoping to get an autograph. So, okay, a hero who loves sexy books, I mean, done. This was a total one-click for me when the book came out last year. Unfortunately, this book kept getting pushed down on my TBR list through no fault of its own, I should say. Sometimes, you know, that's just how things work out. Anyway, I read it this past week, and I was totally in love with Charlie and Miles' story. So their first meeting, things don't exactly go smoothly, but eventually, these opposites do, in fact, become very much attracted. So much so that Charlie considers calling off his wedding. But Alma, the nice girl that Charlie genuinely likes, reveals that if it is called off, the consequences could be catastrophic for her, which leaves our heroes, it's like the seemingly impossible task of working out a way for everyone to get their HEA. This book has got so much. It's got a great story, wonderful characters, and something I wasn't quite expecting was how cozy this story is. It takes place during a particularly brutal November, so almost every scene takes place indoors, whether it's Charlie's favorite gay club, The Curious Fox, or Miles's garret above the bookshop, each setting is described with really warm, rich, cozy detail. The book genuinely feels like being wrapped in a cuddly blanket. So whether you're looking for a fun setup, characters who are totally obsessed with each other, or just some simple cozy vibes, I think The Gentleman's Book of Vices is going to be the book for you. Now, what do you say we get to our interview with Jess Everly? She arrived on the historical romance scene last fall with The Gentleman's Book of Vices, and this week, Jess is back with a rule book for Restless Rogues, which becomes the second book in her Lucky Lovers of London series. And you actually mentioned exactly where that book is set because it happens at The Curious Fox, which, of course, you got to visit a little bit in Gentleman's Book of Vices. So, yeah, we're going to find out from Jess what brought her to Victorian romances, because at one point she was writing a fantasy, and why she's having such a good time writing about this period, which includes some of the topics that she gets to research and we'll get some hints at what comes after Restless Rogues. Jess, welcome to the podcast. It is so exciting to have you here. Hi, it's so exciting to be here too. I, I actually started listening to your podcast like right when I began writing The Gentleman's Book of Vices. My friend said, if you're going to write a big gay book, you got to listen to the big gay fiction podcast. So I took his oh. recommendation and started listening like right around the same time that I started writing it. So it's super cool to be that here chatting. It is amazing to be part of the early part of your writing history. Yes. That's awesome. Yes. Before we get into the new book, because you've got the second mm -hmm. book of Lucky Lovers of London coming out as this podcast comes out, I'd love to know like, what brought you into writing queer historical romance? 
So the Lucky Lovers books are my first published books, but they are not the first books that I wrote. I actually was writing fantasy for a very long time, urban and epic fantasy for many years, but struggled to actually get published in that. I did get an agent. I took a book on submission, kind of tried a few different things and it wasn't really going anywhere. And I was tired and I needed a palate cleanser and I was like, I need to do something else. And I had started reading romance just like somewhere along the way. And I was really sort of enjoying it. I was picking up different subgenres and just kind of exploring. I was like, well, I'll try writing a romance. That sounds, sounds like fun. I had some romantic elements in the fantasy I was writing. A romance editor had actually almost considered acquiring it, but it wasn't quite enough of a romance. So I was like, let's just give the genre a full on try. And I really also loved being able to aim for like 70,000 words instead of like 110,000 words, which had been my previous projects word count goal. Fantasy so books like, are no joke in length. <laughs> no, they are not. So I know historical romance isn't exactly like easy either, but at least had kind of those things that felt a little bit more manageable at the time. And I decided to go with historical over contemporary because I had just done a bunch of research into turn of the century technology and social stuff for an epic fantasy that I'd been working on. And I was just like kind of already in that mode. I was like, I want to stay in this mode. I'm enjoying this mode. I like some of the historicals that I've read. And so let's do it. And I had a couple ideas. I, I liked kind of the forbidden aspects that are in historical. There's just so many reasons to keep your characters a part of any pairing in historical settings. And ultimately, I was so excited about the research that would be required for a gay historical romance about an erotica collector in particular. I was like, I get to research really cool stuff for that. So I decided to go with that idea. And then that's where the Gentleman's Book of Vices and the Lucky Lovers of London series came from. And it's been really fun. I've really enjoyed writing romance and historical romance in particular so far. How does it compare to fantasy? Because not only did your word count come down, but you're not, I mean, you're doing a little bit of world building, obviously, mm -hmm. to put us in the right spot, but you're not having to make everything up either. Yes, it was nice to not have to like rewrite the laws of physics before I sat down to like write another chapter. It has its own things though, because then I also can't just like make something up. I have to actually like look up what kind of lighting or plumbing and stuff they would have. I can't just sort of hand wave it, <laughs> make up my own answer. So it's nice to be in the real world in, in some ways and then in others, you know, then people are, they know the right answer. I don't get to make up the right answer. But it's been great. It has the same sort of element of getting out of this world as fantasy does. So I, I really still enjoy that. What kinds of historicals had you been reading before you took off on writing your own? Like, I'm wondering who inspired you to take the deep dive in on historical romance. <laughs> to be honest, they were, I couldn't even tell you right now, because I was literally just going to the library and just like picking up some romance books and like starting them and like reading and like I'd finish some and I'd put some down. Um, I had a chat. I went to like a writer's group thing and I met some different people that wrote romance. I was like, if I'm going to write a romance, I should talk to some romance authors. I should get some recommendations. I should start to like learn this genre better if I'm going to actually be sitting down and writing it. And uh, that was when I talked to someone else who was actually, she had already written some Victorian era gay historicals. And so she's actually the one who like said, okay, sit down. You got to read Cat Sebastian. You got to read KJ Charles and you cannot do this if you have not read these people. So I was really glad that she was there to kind of direct me. So I kind of started to really fall in love with some of those authors and their stories kind of in tandem with writing. Though I did put off certain ones like KJ Charles has unfit to print about like 
pornographers in Victorian England, I put that one off. I was like, oh no, what if it's too close to what I'm writing? I'm going to have to scrap this whole project. Fortunately, it wasn't. <laughs> when I eventually did pick it up, it ended up being a very different story. But I was definitely being a little careful about which exact ones I was picking up at the same time as writing the book that I was working on, just in case. You certainly got good suggestions there because, of course, Kat yes. and KJ both can practically deliver masterclasses in Absolutely. historical yes, romance, that... queer historical romance. Yeah. That friend is in my acknowledgments for making sure <laughs> that I knew who I needed to know if I was going to write these things. And in your background, I mean, you've got your degrees in English and gender studies, and part of that focuses on Victorian literature. Yes. And public health topics, too. How mm -hmm. did that kind of factor into your romances? And I imagine it had to have helped do the research because you'd already done research in your studies. It did. Yes. It gave me a good starting point for deciding what kind of romance to write. And it was already, the books I was writing were already kind of inspired by some of this stuff as well, even if before it was in the romance genre. I just, I gravitated to those subjects because they're just very much of interest to me. I could just, like, I laugh out loud reading Charles Dickens, who's known as quite dry, but like, I have a great time when I sit down with a Victorian book. And I also just love, I love researching queer history. I'm queer and have been uh, very fortunate, especially when I was younger, to have a really good queer community. I, I went to a performing arts high school and we were all just very sort of like tight knit. And I just sort of developed this kind of love of the community, wanted to learn its history and anything that kind of lets me do that, I'm here for it. And in the Victorian era is particularly very, it's just, it's very interesting the way that like light and darkness is kind of put together on the page in the Victorian era. I like to kind of bring that out, especially talking about gender stuff can be quite dark in the Victorian era for honestly, for everyone, but particularly for queer people and non-conforming people. And it's just, it's a nice, it's just a, it's an interesting mashup. It just, it really holds my attention. So tell us more about this series. And we've got Charlie and Miles in the first book, The Gentleman's mm -hmm. Book of Vices. There's so much I love about this, but I'll let you tell us about it before I dig into what I love about it so much. Okay. Well, I'm off. That's awesome. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. So The Gentleman's Book of Vices, it's a grumpy sunshine romance about a collector of erotic novels and his favorite author. So the collector's name is Charlie Price, and he's sort of this like disaster sunshine dandy. Uh, he's the third son of an upper middle class banker. So far, the Lucky Lover series deals exclusively with middle and upper middle class working people, not like royalty or the dukes and things like that. They're all working people. But Charlie's family does have some money due to their business, though he himself lives um, as sort of a half-hearted accountant who is a wholehearted hedonist with spending habits that are better suited to his family's wealth than like his own. So when the story opens, Charlie's racked up like a lot of debt with his habits of fancy clothes and fancy drinks and his beloved collection of signed, illicit, erotic novels. And when he has to beg his parents for help, but they're not going to help Charlie again, because they've already had to help Charlie before. This time he has to settle down and get married and start living an upright life if he needs to be bailed out of his debts. So his family sets him up with a perfectly nice girl and a perfectly nice job. And Charlie, pathological optimist that he is, has convinced himself that he is not utterly miserable about it. So not exactly a spoiler, he is very miserable about it. And coming to realize how miserable he is about it is part of the story. As kind of a last hurrah before, he has to hide this collection of erotica away from his you know, would-be wife. He and his friend sort of conspire to collect the signature of Charlie's favorite author, Reginald Cox. Once the friend secures the name, Charlie's like, I can just waltz in, I'll just smile and he'll just give me that autograph that I've always wanted. What he's not counting on, though, is that Reginald Cox is actually a very reclusive and grumpy bookseller named Miles Montague. 
Miles is a failed literary novelist. After the tragic death of his previous lover, he turned to writing this sort of like very dark, very kinky, sadomasochistic erotica that was actually very popular during this time period. And so while the grieving Miles would be perfectly happy to just like write his tragic, dark, mean, erotic novels all day and never speak to another person again, that lover actually left him a bookshop one that he barely manages to keep afloat by like padding his coffers with the money that he makes writing this erotica. Because of the circumstances of that lover's death, he is very cautious, even paranoid about his identity as a writer and as a gay man in general. And he is not pleased at all when this like grinning fop like wanders in asking for an autograph and knows his pen name. So it's sort of a meat disaster of the highest order, but they have a lot of chemistry even from the start and those sort of opposite natures that they have are very complementary when they meet back up and kick off that affair that is the rest of the story. I love how you characterize it as meat disaster because sometimes you get the meat cute is great. Mm-hmm. The meat hate is interesting, but meat disaster really classifies this one really well. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I can't remember. Someone said that once and I just love it. I was like, yes, it is a meat disaster. You combine so much of my favorite things right there inside of Miles between bookstore owner, even though he's a reluctant one, and author. I'll practically read anything that's about a bookstore owner and or an author, and then you put them together, but then you made him grumpy. Yep, he's grumpy. (laughs) Very grumpy. (laughs) How did you come upon this story for author and biggest fan? Because those are always fun to read anyway. It is a fun trope. Something I liked about doing it this way was that it kind of flips the trope on its head. I feel like when you have an have a like a celebrity and their biggest fan, a lot of the times the conflict is coming from that celebrity being in the limelight and a lot of the visibility that they have. Not always, but a lot of the time. And then this one though, Miles's sort of celebrity has to remain very secret. There is no visibility. Charlie is literally one of the only people in the world who even knows his pen name. So I enjoyed that kind of like twist on the trope where like Charlie's very fanboy, but nobody else even really knows who this guy is. And if they don't want to admit that they know who this guy is. And then as for Miles in general and writing as the author, like I don't ever set out to write characters that are based on myself or anybody else. But when I look back at Miles being like failed in another genre and gave up and started writing smut while unenthusiastically working retail, I cannot help but see some parallels to what I was going through at the time when I started sitting down to to write this book. So it's actually kind of funny to look back and kind of see those those similarities there. But it just it is it's a fun trope and it was a good one to start with, I think. You mentioned having to research like smut of the era and Uh actually peddling smut of the era, which was a very big no-no back then. Mm -hmm. What kind of research were, were you doing and what was some interesting bits of the research that either did make it into the book or maybe didn't? It was interesting to actually like read the texts. So because they're so old, you can actually, if you want to read Victorian pornographic literature, you can just go on Project Gutenberg and you can just like read till your heart is content. That's what's out there and it is free. And so I did actually like read the books and some of them are specifically referenced in the book, particularly since the Cities of the Plains by Jack Saul is referenced in this book as being sort of like a rare another rare tome that Charlie has acquired. And so there's some like little snippets and fun facts in there. It also served, interestingly enough, actually researching the erotic literature also helped research 
what queer spaces might have looked like in the time period. No one sat down in 1883 and like wrote down like, here's exactly what a typical night at the gay bar looks like because that was illegal and they don't, that's just not what they were doing. And so you, I, I was piecing things together from sort of like these erotic pieces that were out there and then you have court records and you can find like letters between people and sort of like accounts later on that people give of other people's lives and piecing together all of these all these bits and parts of what life might have looked like what writing this kind of stuff might have looked like researching the different publishers and sort of interesting characters who are putting things out there's a miles's publisher is like vaguely sort of like slightly based on an actual publisher who ended up publishing some work that was probably written by oscar wilde that was erotic in nature and then some of his other things they did have his name on later on that were attributed to him properly but there's a lot of interesting characters a lot of funny things going on at that time and it was just kind of cool to to piece it all together so the second book a real book for restless rogues comes out july 11th we get david and noah this time a nice little friends to lovers kind of scenario playing out tell us a little bit about their story Right. Well, you're going to get a lot of pining with this book. I can say that right out, off the, right out the gates, even though I have plenty of pining. They're obviously pining in book one they're, when they're introduced in that. During Charlie and Miles' story, there's some kind of side characters in that story, and you kind of see what's going on there. And in this particular book, they do get their own story, and it was so much fun to write. So David is the manager of the Curious Fox, which is the queer club that's introduced in book one that Charlie goes to and brings Miles to. And he doesn't just manage this club. like He finds his life's purpose at this club. He's providing a safe space for London's persecuted gay community. He's got a bit of a rough family background. And so being able to protect and care for his people is very important to him, especially one of those people is his best friend, Noah, who is a bespoke tailor by day and a drag queen slash card shark by night at the club. So since Lucky Lovers focuses on these working class characters, David and Noah did not meet at Eton or anywhere particularly prestigious, but they did meet at boarding school in one of the many sort of sketchy, short-lived boarding schools that were kind of popping up all over the place during this time period for middle-class teenagers and things like that. And so while they were very passionate friends and like fooled around in broom cupboards and such while they were at school, their understanding of their own queerness was really stunted by the society they live in. So they didn't have the language that would have let them label that relationship for what it was. And so due to kind of outside circumstances, it kind of fizzled into this warm friendship before they developed better self-awareness later on in life. And by that point, it felt like the ship had sailed and it was kind of too late. So they kind of convinced themselves they're happy with this friendship that they have. That's enough for them. So the book opens with these old friends who everyone knows are half in love with each other, but for their own reasons that get revealed through the book, they are content with that friendship until the there's a cruel and unscrupulous baron who actually owns the Curious Fox. Like David manages it, but he does not own it. It's owned by this nobleman who's threatening to close the club down. David is like desperate to save it. His whole life is tied up in it. He's going to do anything to get the baron to keep it open. So Noah, of course, wants to help his best friend however he can, but starts to realize that David is in sort of a more precarious situation with the club and the baron than he realized. The club is obviously illegal. What David calls matchmaking, the law is going to call procuring and going to call pimping or essentially basically so he could be jailed for a very long time if he doesn't play his cards right in this situation but in the meantime the baron's keeping all this information and it's just like kind of sketchy it's kind of this high risk high intensity situation for david and when david and noah are in the thick of it 
they just don't have as much energy to spare to like ignore their feelings for each other. They have to, just, it's all kind of bubbling to the surface while other things are going on. So looking for comfort, they're hooking up again, like they did at school, but this time they both can't, they know they're queer, they're older, they, they know kind of what's going on and they can't just like shrug it off as schoolboy stuff anymore. They have to confront these feelings that they've had and the fears that they've had about kind of increasing their commitment to yeah, to each other. It's, it's a really sweet and emotional story. I really enjoyed writing. And it was hard sometimes because getting David to a happy ending in these circumstances required some really creative problem solving because he's really in a situation. But we get there in the end and on the way. There's a lot of kindness and friendship and sort of humor and things like that happening that balances out those other aspects of it. I just, I love these characters. I had so much fun writing their story and I'm so excited for people to finally be reading it. I love a good friends to lovers tale in mm -hmm. historicals because there are so many more consequences to that friendship. Like if you've read it wrong, maybe, yeah. or yes. just how much can you show in public that could be read as friends, but mm -hmm. could be read as something else. How did you kind of strike balance to maybe make it feel dangerous for them, but also let them have their thing too? That's a good question. I'm thinking about the, how to best answer that one. So there are flashback chapters to their like schoolboy days and then a little bit after. And part of it is just that they are, they're a little bit oblivious. You know, you can kind of read about this in historical things that it wasn't particularly uncommon for like boys at boarding school to have even call each other lovers as long as no one actually believed that they were doing anything sexual. They would still like have like special friends and they would sometimes even use that term lovers at boarding school at this time. It was just like a more affectionate terminology that was used. So they can kind of slide under the radar while they're at school. And then when it's when they get a little bit older, which is some of the, I think the more interesting flashbacks, particularly when Noah hasn't even really figured out, he doesn't even really know it's possible to be queer. He just knows they're kind of doing this thing and like probably other boys are doing it too. And like, so it's whatever, but he's got these intense feelings. He doesn't know what to do with. They actually, in terms of the danger aspect, they are fairly, they're more open than I think other characters, I actually was really interested in seeing how far I could push that realistically with Noah's character in particular. So he actually comes from a family of progressive Unitarians who were active in certain areas and social situations during the time period. So his family is actually, they aren't terribly stressed about it. And they actually, there is historical precedent for the fact that there, there were people who were all right. And there were people who were living somewhat openly as long as they weren't specifically caught in 1885 and then going into 1886 some of the laws changed and became more difficult but up until that point unless they could kind of prove something or something there was someone who really had it out to get you it was possible if there were circumstances that you could probably just everyone could talk about you and as long as they didn't prove it you'd be okay <laughs> and that's kind of noah's situation and so it was really interesting to get to to write that charlie and miles in the first book are very closeted but noah and david are actually not nearly as concerned about secrecy just because of their circumstances because noah's kind of in this bubble of nonconformists that he's surrounded with in his daily life and because david is mostly surrounded by people who do illegal things anyway so he doesn't really have anything to hide from anybody because that's kind of his world so it it was an, it was an interesting one I, I was kind of trying to push some of those historical things a little bit in a different direction than i did with the first book and i enjoyed doing that i suspect some of this may have played into the curious fox too because 
as it's described, it very much strikes me as what we have in the modern day of like the safe coffee house or the safe mm -hmm. bar or yeah. a place that you know as a queer you can go and be with your tribe. And I don't right. know that we often think of that in terms of historical fiction mm -hmm. and historical times. Yes, I agree. And I, I think that part of it is just because we don't necessarily have all of the records, but it seems pretty obvious that they would be there. And then in terms of the, you mentioned the safe coffee house or whatever, like Noah has his place that he goes, but it has a very different, it has a very different vibe than the Curious Fox. So the Noah's family, who's very accepting of Noah when he's being very sort of like polite about things, they don't like David because David's doing this like lascivious club and he's doing things illegally and they don't like, they don't like how he, they don't like David's kind of queer. <laughs> Noah's fine as long as he is doing the things he's supposed to do, but David takes things way too far. And so that's, I liked to, I enjoyed really exploring kind of that tension, which I think we see today too. And so that was, I think, part of it is sort of this idea of like respectability stuff versus living a little more out loud kind of, kind of things still come up now. And I imagine they would, they're sort of timeless. Probably. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> so you researched smut for yep. Book of Vices. What was the big research for Restless Rogues? There were a couple of things I got to research that were, the research was so fun for this. So as I said, I was researching these sort of like progressive spaces. So I did some research into British Unitarianism, some different coffee house culture and uh, the sort of burgeoning gay rights movement that was beginning. You, we, you start to actually see like documents written, you see them in German earlier, but in English and coming out of England about five-ish years after this book is set. And so I did make a little bit of an assumption that those conversations were starting to bubble up behind closed doors before we would have seen like the actual, the publications that we see out into the world. So I did bring some of that into this, into this world. And that was very interesting to kind of get to look into these other alternative spaces. So not just the the obvious queer community, but these other movements and things that were happening, these other countercultural nonconformist spaces that were there. Cause you think about conformity a lot with the Victorian era, but they also had people, it's London, it's a big city. It had all kinds of people with all kinds of ways of thinking and doing things. And so that was a lot of fun. I also got to research on the whimsical side, bespoke tailoring and Seville Row and the history of all of those kinds of things. I got, I don't have it with me. Oh, I have a coffee table book about the Henry Poole showroom that on Seville Row that was open then and is still open today and still doing like hand-stitched bespoke tailoring. And so it like goes through all their famous clients and things like that. So that was the, he doesn't work for Henry Poole. I'm going to say that right now. Noah doesn't work for Henry Poole. It's a made up. <laughs> It is a made-up tailor shop. I must say that because it's still open after so many years. But it was really cool to get to kind of see all the pictures of like what a tailoring showroom would look like and all of the really famous rich people that they that Noah might in theory be able to be dressing and working with if he was indeed working at somewhere somewhere like that on Seville Row. I like how you have kind of the fun light aspect yes. of that, especially the fact that you got a coffee table book. <laughs> That yes. I imagine must just be exquisite. It is. It's so cool. So in Restless Rogues, what's a favorite scene of yours, if you can give it away without causing spoilers? 
I think I can. I have a lot that I really enjoyed, but I think that some of my favorites were those flashback chapters that I got to write in their younger days. So the first draft, it was just a prologue. I, I had just a prologue, but my editor wanted me to put in a few more chapters. So it was like more dual timeline. And I think it just really helped explore why they never committed to each other in the first place when they're so obviously into each other. So I really enjoyed, especially, and if you read the first book, then you see a lot of Noah cheating at cards and he dresses up in dragon. He, does, he like makes up all these rules for his card games to ensure that he always wins because no one can remember the rules because they're too complicated. And there is a scene, a flashback scene that shows like the moment that he like realized that he has like, it's a little angsty, but it's also a lot of fun that he has like not so much control over the outside world and the ways that he can live, live in the world. And so he starts He's like, let's set some house rules and play this card game. It ends on this slightly angsty, but also kind of like fun note to kind of get to see that moment that he sort of becomes who you're going to see in these later books and the beginnings of that comedic relief that comes about when Noah is taking everybody's money at the card table. So I really like doing that one. <laughs> I love that you're just making up rules. <laughs> Yes. We're not just playing poker or something. I'm just going to make up all no. the rules now. You're going to have to sort that out as the player. No. So a fun fact about that, I actually invented Noah in the first book because I didn't want to learn how to play Whist, which was like the really complicated card game that they played in the Victorian era. And I was like, I just have this one scene and I want them to be playing cards and they got to have dialogue, but I can't learn this whole game just for this. This one thing, I'm not going to be able to be realistic about it. So it's like, what if we had a character who just like makes up rules and it doesn't even matter? And it ended up being like a really fun fix. And I didn't go back and get rid of it like in a later draft. I was like, I'm going to lean in and we're going to do this all the way. And then he got his own book. So we leaned in all the way. Are you going to publish card game rules now too as like bonuses? Oh gosh. <laughs> That's not a bad <laughs> idea. Actually, some newsletter content. I like that. Noah's yeah. rules. Newsletter content, yeah. Sign up for my email list. Yeah, I love this card game. <laughs> you teased us a little bit mentioning book three. Yeah. How much more can you tell us about what's next in this series? It doesn't seem to be secret, so I can tell you that the there is one more book that is like contracted and in progress right now. I would love to write some more, but as of the time of this recording, I don't yet know if that's going to happen or not. So the third book is a sapphic hate to love story, which is a very different trope from the first two, because I feel like the first two, the characters like really like each other kind of pretty quickly. So this one is a lot of fun because they do not like each other for quite some time. And it is actually one of my most requested characters, which is the dapper and mysterious Miss Joe, who is the one who procures Miles's information in the first book. And she's sort of forced to seek help for a friend from a character that readers are going to meet in book two, which is Noah's twin sister, Emily, who is a, as I mentioned before, this sort of no-nonsense, very tightly laced, very practical female physician. But if you've read both books, you will probably be able to predict what an interesting pair these two make. They have a lot of chemistry and a lot of banter and are also just like, so I don't know, they're just so snippy and so much fun to write. The tentative title is The Blue Stockings Guide to Decadence, but it is still in edits, so that's not final, but it is fitting. So you will get blue stockings, you will get decadence. I can promise those things. I can't promise you the title, but probably. And as I mentioned, there's a couple other characters I would love to write stories for. So we'll see. I'll keep you guys posted. 
How do you go about picking the titles? Because the titles have a very nice cadence of sound to them. Rule book for Restless Rogues definitely has the alliteration going on. Mm-hmm. Gentleman's Book of Vices, not quite classic alliteration, but also rolls off the tongue nicely. Do you yeah, come up I, with those? Is that your editors that come up with them? Is it collaborative? I did not come up with the first one. It was that, The original title was actually a curious collection. And it was going to be the curious series was kind of like the working title that I had. And they had me, Karina had me fill out like a title change worksheet because they, they wanted it to be different. And they didn't take any of my ideas because honestly, they weren't very good. But they're like, we, they came back like the gentleman's book of vices. I was like, oh, that's amazing. I love that. Let's. Let's do that. So that was the first one. And then the second one, I just like made up a working title that kind of sounded like it went with the first one. (laughs) And there's a funny thing with that. It was actually supposed to be Reckless Rose. That was my working title. But like somewhere along the line, I don't know if there was an autocorrect or something, but like (laughs) I got my cover and it said Restless. I was like, that's interesting. I didn't know we changed the title. Nobody knows. It's a mystery how the title got changed, but everybody liked it and I liked it too. So we're just like, you know, let's we'll just roll with it. Let's just keep it. And so that's that one. And then again with the third one, I was just like, let's just come up with something that sounds like it goes. And it totally does. It, and restless, restless, reckless to restless. Yeah, I could totally see that being autocorrect somewhere, given how yeah. pesky autocorrect is sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it actually fits. It fits just as well, if not better. So. It was a happy, very happy little accident with the title there. We talked a little bit about you were writing fantasy before you came into mm-hmm. kind of doing the palette cleanse with historical romance. What prompted you to write in the first place? I've been writing since like middle school. Since the time I was, I think, 14, I pretty much had like a novel in the works. I just really enjoy putting pen to paper and writing stories. I just have a, I have a really good time with it. Before that, I was even, I've just always been a creative, I was a creative kid and that just kept on going. It was a nice way to connect with friends. I would sometimes write stories with my friends and then started putting things together myself as well. And it was just kind of like a hobby. It was just something that I was always doing from that age on. And at a certain point, I just got a little more serious about it. I, I wrote a book that I thought I might publish like right after I graduated from high school. I kind of figured, oh, maybe this will be the one. It was not the one. It was not very good. And it, <laughs> it was not going to be the one. And I didn't really know what I was getting into. But that was when I started researching like how to get published and how to be a better writer and started actually, I went and I pursued that English major and decided to take it more seriously. So it's just something that I really enjoy and just kind of started doing one day as a hobby for fun and have just never stopped and don't really want to stop. We'll hopefully get to keep on doing this. And even if nobody wants the book, I'll probably keep writing them anyway, <laughs> just because it's it's an enjoyable part of my life. Do you see staying in historical romance or going back to fantasy or kind of where do you kind of want things to go? Or do you even... I love it. I love historical romance. Now that I've started, I don't really have any inclination to to change i read more romance i'm enjoying writing writing the romance it's just it's been a really cool it's a cool space it's it's a really sort of positive space and a really enjoyable to write the books so yeah i'd like to stay there what is the enjoyable part about writing the books i like getting into the characters heads i just really i enjoy trying to like 
really explore the characters, the things that they would do, find those places where they can be vulnerable and you can get to know them better and then sort of have them interact and watch how two characters can bring out the best in each other. And that's always been something that I like. There's so much more of it in romance than in the other stuff I was writing in. And it just kind of lets me dig into that thing that I like the most, which is it's the dialogue, it's the interactions between the characters. It's some of that internal stuff going on with building the characters and just making them grow Mm -hmm. on the page. I do love a good internal monologue. I was glad you kind of hinted at the internal stuff too, because sometimes with some characters, they're internal. It's as interesting as they're external very often if they're freaking out or something. It's a lot of fun. That was something else I really like about this genre is there's more space for that. Whereas I feel like when I was writing fantasy, I was always being asked to cut a lot of that. And I was training myself to put as little as possible. Whereas here I get notes saying, we need more internal. It's like, I got you. I would love to put more internal. I just didn't think anybody wanted it, but they want it. So I'll put it. So that's great. We love to get book recommendations and actually watching recommendations too. What have you been taking in recently that our listeners should check out? So this one is not a romance, but one of my favorite recent historical, queer historical reads was Confessions of the Fox. I don't know if you've picked that one up. So I don't know that one. It is this like very literary historical novel that queers the story of the three penny opera in this sort of outlandish, like fantastic, fantastical way. It has this like meta element of a trans researcher who's discovered this like secret manuscript or something that tells the true story. The three penny opera character, Jack, I can't remember the character's name right now but it is a wild ride and i've never read anything like it in my life and i highly recommend it to anyone who is not currently like in a mindset of needing like all the fluffy content because it is not fluffy content but yeah, it three is, penny opera is not light material it's not light <laughs> material so that that caveat is there it's really interesting i actually am in a mindset of needing fluffy content at this time so i'm actually re-watching my comfort watch which is that newer adaptation of she-ra on netflix oh, i don't yeah. know if you've seen that i it's just so gorgeous and it's so funny and my guinea pigs like it i have guinea pigs and they sing they like sing along to the theme song with their like guinea pig sounds. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. So I am rewatching that right now as sort of a chill out comfort thing before I start this the next round of edits on the third book, which should be coming one of these days. Is there anything you could tease about what comes after that yet? Do you have things that you're thinking about that even outside of the series? I want to do a Western. So I am thinking about that. I want to do something set in a like mining town. I think that would be a lot of fun. I'm really interested in That's another sort of time and place that I've done some research into before and that I find really interesting. Have you ever watched that super corny Hallmark show, When Calls the Heart, that is like set in this mining town? I have not. I've seen the ads. Obviously, I'm a big is, Hallmark fan, but I've never watched the show. Though I suspect I would enjoy it if I did. It is just like so over. It's just like kind of over the top, like mushy with all of this like ensemble cast. And I would just love to like fill it 
with just like disaster queers and just do this like mining town but just like with a completely sort of different vibe and different cast so i'm actually going to montana later this year so hopefully do a little bit of like in-person research into that sort of space and see some different historical things and so fingers crossed whenever lucky lovers to sort of run its course that's my hope to be hopefully the next kind of project oh that sounds amazing i'm really excited about it i don't have anything very specific it's just a vague idea right now but it'll it's going to be a lot of fun to get ready for it yeah absolutely because i love a good cowboy romance or something said at the uh-huh. ranch or whatever so yes yeah. please write me something in a mining town <laughs> with yeah. all the hallmark tropes around it exactly <laughs> What is the best way for folks to keep up with you online so they know when book three comes out and everything else that you get up to? I first direct people to my website, it's just jesseverly.com. From there, you can send me a message or you can find the link to subscribe to my newsletter. And that's really the best way to get news, like the pre-order info and information about new releases and things like that. I send one out about every month, not every month, every other month, unless there's something like really exciting going on or like time sensitive and then I'll send an extra. So the newsletter is not really a big time commitment for you. I'm also on Instagram at Jess Everly, where I kind of like post updates and stuff that I think is fun. I'm not like super duper online, but I do love to hear from readers. So like I have these channels open, so anyone can feel free to get in touch with me either of those places. Readers are really just the best. And my publicist asked me to start making reels. So you can join me on that journey. If you, if you find me over on Instagram, it's been more fun than I expected so far, but it's still new. Excellent. All right. We'll link to that plus all of the books and things that we talked about. Jess, thank you so much for being here. It's been so great to hear about everything and wish you all the success with Rulebook for Restless Rogues. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a really good time. This episode's transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the conversation for yourself, head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGateFictionPodcast.com. You've got links to everything that we've talked about in this episode. And thanks so much to Jess for coming to talk to us about the Lucky Lovers of London. I really loved hearing about the research between learning about Victorian erotica, and we really do have a link to the one that she pointed out in our show notes, and then bespoke tailoring as well. So wonderful. And I really hope she pursues that historical cowboy idea, because I would love, love, love to read that. All right, I think that'll do it for now. Coming up next Monday, we're celebrating Christmas in July with Julie Murphy and Sierra Simone. If I felt like I could get away with singing it, I would do a little fa-la-la or something, but really nobody wants to hear that. You know, we love our Christmas romances here, and Julie and Sierra gave us an excellent one last year with Merry Little Meet Cute. And they take us back to the Christmas Notch universe with Snow Place Like L.A. You are not going to want to miss this fun and funny conversation next week. Jeff and I want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you'll join us again soon for more discussions about the kinds of stories we all love, the big gay fiction kind. Until then, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Original theme music by Daryl Banner. Thank you.